scripture again is taken from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and it reads as follows, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now this verse is really the go-to verse in support of the discipline of Christian apologetics. Um, it's, it's the one that everyone, it's, in fact you could say it's a proof text for the importance of the discipline of Christian apologetics and that's because the phrase that's in the verse, give an answer, is uh, in Greek, it's pros apologion, which simply means to give a defense or an apology. And so for that reason, the, the idea of when we say an apology, it doesn't mean to say I'm sorry, but it really means to defend, to defend one's faith. So this verse has rightly been used to encourage Christians and believers throughout the ages as Paul Little wrote in two books, consecutive books that are very helpful, and it used to be the tagline for the White Horse Inn, uh, he wrote two books entitled, one was entitled Know What You Believe, and then the other one was Know Why You Believe. And that used to be our tagline for years on the White Horse Inn, and I guess it remains to, uh, the same. But the idea is know what it is you believe and be able to explain what you believe. And the idea is that this is the responsibility of every believer. We think about that. That's, it is important because so many of us or so many people that claim whatever their faith is, and especially in Christian ranks, that's where we are, uh, that will say we believe something, and you say, well, explain it. And it doesn't mean that we have to be able to fully explain everything, or you say, well, the Lord says this, and you say, well, how do you know? Well, I just know. And, and, and Peter says, no, it's, it's a little more than that. You got to say more. You got to have more to offer than I just know. So this passage has been very helpful in establishing the idea that we should pay attention to not only what we believe, but to be able to explain it. So therefore, calling attention to the words in this, in this text, it's had a very positive uh, impact The idea of, of recognizing from scriptures that we do have an obligation, in a sense, uh, to an obligation to the culture and to the world, to others who are outside of the faith, to be able to explain. Now, hold in mind, and I, and I think it is, um, sometimes people confuse apologetics with evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel. It's declaring the gospel. Apologetics is defending the faith. Those are not one and the same. And the reason that's important is because in apologetics, the, the aim of apologetics is to make your position clear. The aim of evangelism is to get people to hear the gospel and respond to it. In either case, here's what we can't do. We can't make people believe what we believe, but we ought to at least give a reason for it. Uh, and But here's where the confusion comes in. 
Sometimes Christians, overzealous with apologetics, we assume that because we've won the argument that the other side is going to concede, and they're not. So even when you're able to give a reasonable explanation, I love it when you you give an explanation and and you say, well, okay, well, that makes sense. And then they'll at least walk away. They they may not, you say, hey, wait a minute, but don't you want to hear the four spiritual laws? They say, no, you, you know, that's it. So it doesn't necessarily mean because you win the argument, you explained your position, that people are now going to be sold on the Christian faith, but at least explain it. So therefore, I would argue that this verse and the emphasis of apologetics that's grounded in it has had a very positive effect in Christian uh, scholarship and in Christian discipleship. There are a long line of men and women down through the ages of the Christian church that have taken Peter's charge to heart here. Uh, Going all the way back, or if we look in the early 20th century, C.S. Lewis and John Warwick Montgomery, a contemporary, more of a contemporary, James White, a very much a contemporary, Ravi Zacharias, all of these men have devoted their great intellectual gifts to reasoning uh, and their reasoning abilities to explain and defend aspects of the Christian faith. And on top of that, we've had men like Walter Martin and then with, with his Bible Answer Man. You remember that, that radio program where, and where he began is to help Christians deal with, I don't want to say the nuisance, but to deal with the reality of Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at the door. And two things that Walter Martin really emphasized in the early days of, of uh, Bible Answer Man. Number one, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, you don't have to run. Just get your Bible. Run, get your Bible. And, 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 and here's what he emphasized. Therefore, know the arguments, that they, know how to answer their arguments, but more importantly, know what you believe. And that was critical. Hank Hanegraaff picked it up and, and, and emphasized that. And so people would call in with different questions about doctrine and so forth. And it is important to know what we believe. We don't just begin with morality because every religion, in fact, even non-religions understand that man ought to be moral in his dealings with one another. So in a very positive sense, Uh, I think understanding the apologetic angle of this particular verse have given Christians down through the ages, and we've seen it fleshed out in many ways, and there are great apologetic books, by the way, that emphasize the importance of knowing what we believe. And man, that just, it, it, I think it helps in terms of, of strengthening the body of Christ at large. That we are not believing in, in something that's made up. Even if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, listen, what I delivered to you, is, which is of, of first importance, is the same thing that was received by me. And that is, and he goes on to talk about the fact of the resurrection. So why do we believe? that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not because he rose in my heart. And that's one of the things we're coming up in the Easter season. We need to know that Jesus didn't rise in your heart and it doesn't matter if that grave is occupied or empty. It does matter. It makes all the difference in the world. Because if you can dig up a body where, where Jesus was buried and prove by DNA that it is actually Jesus, then as Paul says, we may as well go home. 
our believing is vain. And we are still in our sins. So therefore, on a positive side, this has been very helpful. The understanding that we need to know what it is we believe. We do not believe that Jesus, when we go to the garden, he walks with us and talks with us. No, he's too busy at the right hand of the Father to be in your garden in the cool of the day. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. In scarred body. So what gives me liver shivers is not what I feel when I walk into the cool of the day. No, that he walks with me and whispers. No, it's not that he's walking with me and whispering with me. He has sealed me with his Holy Spirit as he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's there. We need to know that. We need to know that if Jesus is not raised, then we are not saved. If Jesus did not die on the cross, then we are still in our sins. So I think this, this, this verse has been helpful in that it's made us all more cognizant of the fact that our faith is a, is, is a, is a fact-based faith. People will say, well, you believe in a mystery. No, we, we don't believe in a mystery. We don't believe in, in something that's that in, in a myth. We believe in something that's been documented. And you can you cannot believe it or not. That's okay. It doesn't matter. I was listening to a climatologist talk the other day, and he says um, it's interesting that over 90% of climatologists believe in global warming, but only 35% of the population believe in it. And he says, but what I find ridiculous is that people say, do you believe in global warming? He says, what is it to believe? The facts tell you, you know? And, and, and so he says, it's, it's interesting. Nobody asks you if you believe in gravity. Nobody asks you if, because it's a proven fact. And so the same thing with our Christian faith. The facts are out there, and it's important for us to understand that the Christian faith is a faith that is based on facts, and it is not solely a matter of one's subjective feelings. It's not about what you feel in your heart of hearts. But if there is a downside to our emphasis that this verse as an apostolic mandate to defend the, the faith, it would be this. If there's a downside, it would be that we have a tendency to overshadow the fact that Peter's call is that his call is is to apologetics, it's we, we emphasize it, but we forget that Peter's emphasis on uh, apologetics is both pastoral and personal. In other words, he's not saying, hey, guys, on top of everything else, here's what we need to do because the world is watching and so we need to make sure we go into the marketplace and defend the faith. No, he's not writing to an elite group within the church. But Peter's words here that, that we are to be able to give an answer to every man that asks us, he is writing to a congregation of believers. And not only is he writing to a congregation of believers, but Peter is writing as an elder to a church, and therefore it's, it's pastoral because he's writing as an elder. But it's practical because it is addressed to all believers as a natural part of their Christian walk. So there are four things that we want to briefly address here. The first thing is this. 
since this is a pastoral uh, admonition, the first thing to note is the assumption upon which Peter gives the exhortation. Here's the exhortation. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asks. So be ready to give an answer. But here's the assumption upon which he gives that, that exhortation. Peter assumes that the hope that rests in the hearts of every Christian is somehow made recognizable to unbelievers. He, he, he assumes, he, he assumes. In other words, the reason, he says, we need to be, to be ready to give an answer is because Peter assumes that unbelievers will ask about our faith. Let me, let me offer a brief definition because, uh, of, of hope, uh, because Peter is assuming that internal hope would somehow be tangible or visible even to unbelieving eyes. A brief definition of the word hope is this. It is the expectation and desire for a certain thing. A, an expectation and a desire. I, I want to offer that definition so that we don't confuse hope with wishful thinking. You know, it's we, we hope to win the lottery. But we don't necessarily have the numbers tell us otherwise, right? <laughs> that, that you don't really have a reasonable expectation of winning it. That's, that's wishful thinking. But Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is a reason and reasonable expectation for a certain thing to happen. Therefore, Christian hope in particular can be summarized as this. It is the expectation that our crucified and resurrected Savior is now at the right hand of the Father and he is coming again to judge the earth. I mean, that's, that's it. And when he comes again to judge the earth, he is coming to judge the wicked and he's coming to reward the righteous. Now, that's the Christian hope. That's not what we are just saying, oh, Lord, I hope you. No, this is what the facts lead to. This is what God's word says. And therefore, we expect and we desire the Lord who is raised and right now seated at the right hand of the Father to return to the earth. We don't know all of the facts of what it's going to look like and how that's going to play out. But here's what we know and here's what we expect. We expect the one who was crucified to return to the earth and every eye somehow will see him. I, don't, explain, don't ask me to explain how that is going to happen but I believe it's going to happen, and that is the Christian hope. And when he returns, then all of our problems within the earth, the earth will be purged of that which, which soils it, and the, the righteous will be rewarded, and part of that reward is a body that is suited to be with him for all eternity. That's our hope. And so here's what, what Peter seems to be to assume. He seems to assume that the hope that is in us has caused something from us that gets the attention of the unbelieving world. Look at what he says. Be ready to give a reason for what? The hope that is in you. Yeah. When men ask you. 
So what is going to prompt them to ask you about the hope that is within you? And that's when I think somehow it is, it, it, Peter is assuming that internal hope of, of believing people is made visible or tangible to those who are outside of the faith. Now that brings us to a second thing. And that is the question of how is our eternal hope that is subjective, how is it made observable? How is our, our, our eternal, internal hope, how is it made visible or knowable to an unbelieving world? We, we don't show them, you know, a lot of different signs. And in fact, Peter's not even assuming that supernatural signs are on display. He's assuming that the hope that is in us makes an observable difference among unbelievers. So here's the question. How then is our internal hope made observable? And I think he answers this in his own, in, in this verse, in the King James, the opening of this verse in the King James says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. That's, that's a, it's, it's a, it's a wordy, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a strange concept when you hear the idea of sanctify the Lord. Sanctify the Lord, uh, the word sanctify means to set apart. Okay, to set apart. Uh, and, and so in other words, we don't sanctify God in our hearts by making him holy. God sanctifies us by making us holy. But so the question then is how do we sanctify the Lord? Which is why I like the ESV translation. The ESV translation puts it this way. In your heart, honor the Lord. In your heart, honor the Lord. Uh, in, in your heart, honor the Lord always. Okay? In your heart, honor the Lord always. In other words, let your aim in everything that you do, let it be to bring glory and honor to our God. So, so, so it's, and it's in the dynamics of our seeking to honor and glorify our God that somehow ought to get the attention of those that e who are even unbelievers. Now, hold in mind, when he says, honor the Lord in your heart always. So our, the, the, the aim of our conduct, A, is not so that we can get to heaven. I wish Christians would stop trying to obey so we can get to heaven. So the, the aim of our conduct, we, 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 are, we ought to be conscious of the words that we speak, the thoughts that we allow to take uh, cover in or take, uh, take, uh, to, to take up residence in our minds, and the, the, how we use our bodies. The aim of it, the, the reason we are cognizant of these things is not because if we don't, we won't go to heaven. We, we, we need to flush that. That's not, no, you... Because you may as well keep doing it. You're, you're not, that's not going to get you there. And the aim of our conduct is not so that we could win others. Even though evangelism should be our concern. But that's a different thing. What Peter is talking about is how you live your life. And the reason we live our lives in thought, word, and deed is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That we now should yield our bodies as instruments of righteousness. For what reason? To serve and honor him. Yeah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or whether you drink, 
Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And so it seems as if what Peter is suggesting here, by having our lives driven by the desire to bring glory and honor to God and not to win honor from men and not so that people would applaud us and not so that we can get a reality TV show or not so that we can get more followers on social media, but the aim of all of our doing, our words, our actions, our thoughts, It's not so that we can get home, but it's because we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because we have been raised with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, we are just glad to be free. And so therefore, here's what what Peter is suggesting. He's suggesting that our hope, which is the desire and the expectation of the soon return of our crucified Savior ought to have such an impact on all of our thinking that it, it drives us. We, we are marching to a different drumbeat. Whatever it is that we do, whatever portion of life that God has given to us, wherever we are in the vineyard, it is always our aim to please him. It is our aim to honor him. It is our aim. Why? Because we know he's returning. We know that he is real. We know that he is going to return and he will receive us unto himself. Here's how we sanctify the Lord. By giving our lives over to his honor above all things. So that doesn't mean there's a Christian way to change your tire. That doesn't mean there's a Christian way to shop. That doesn't mean that we only listen to Christian music. What it means is that now for the first time since our, our, the creation of man or the fall of man, we are actually able to do that which pleases him. The most famous Protestant catechism question is question number one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we we don't understand all of the constraints that are on us that keep us from enjoying him. And so what we do is enjoy the Lord. And, And Peter is implying that somehow... The aim of enjoying and glorifying God is such a strange occurrence that unbelievers are going to say, wait a minute, why do you know? Did you see the news? Why do you love the Lord? Why why are you devoted? What is it that's causing you to, to be focused? Why do you do good? Why are you concerned about this? I was reading a couple weeks ago when they had the minus 30 degrees in, in Chicago. And there was a woman there that, that, that she didn't have much money, but, but she rented out hotel rooms. She donated, she gave money so that homeless people could have a place, a warm place to sleep through the blizzard and the storm. And people started funding that. He said, well, why do you do that? Some might say, so that I can get a crown. And and you know what? I don't know if this woman was a believer or not. She might have done it simply because there was another human being in need. 
And so if you were to ask her why she did it, she might say simply because someone needed it. But brothers and sisters, here's what Peter seems to be convinced of, is that those who have been saved by grace are set on fire by grace. And the, the grace that, 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 that sets us on fire frees us for the first time to be able to bring glory and honor to God. Here's what, what the Lord says in Isaiah, which is absolutely true, that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. You know what that means? That means if you are outside of Christ, you're just out of luck. You just keep trying to do and your good is never going to be good enough. It's going to help your neighbor, so continue to help your neighbor. But what it does mean for those of us who are in Christ is that God takes our little dirty good because it is ministered through the hand of his son and he looks at it as if it's a, a thing of beauty. So why do we do good? Because the Father accepts it and delights in it. See, why do we seek justice? Why, do we, why are we concerned about our neighbors, whether they are believers or not? Because it delights the Father that we do. And since we are the children of the Heavenly Father, we want to delight Him. Stephen Brown put it this way. He says that, you know how we have children when our children are in elementary school? And they bring home uh, these drawings that they took their great time to draw. And he says, you know what we do with them? We put them on the refrigerator. And when we take it from the hands of our child, we look at it and we say, oh, baby, that's sweet. That's beautiful. And we put it on the refrigerator. And we are proud of every family that is children. In fact, our son was a grown man and we still had some of his stuff on the refrigerator. Because for us, it's like the Louvre. And Steve Brown says that in heaven, God has a big old refrigerator. And all of our filthy rags righteousness is tacked onto that refrigerator as if it is perfect. And that gives the Father delight. And so our love, our service, our good brings honor to our Father. So it's not the, 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 the fear of hell that drives our good doing. It's the, it's the twinkle in our Father's eye. Yes, sir. When he sees us operating according to what he created us for. And so Peter is assuming that, that our commitment to doing these things is going to be noticeable to unbelievers. That's our hope. Our hope and our desire is that we will see him. We expect Jesus to return. And when he returns, we expect to be received by him. And because we expect to be received by him, we conduct our lives accordingly. But Peter says the unbelievers around you are looking at you. So here's the third thing. Let's look at the context in which Peter assumes that internal hope, because he says it's going to be made visible. How is it going to be made visible so that men would ask questions? It's going to be made visible as we consciously seek to bring honor to God in all of our actions. So what's the context in which we are going to do this? Look at verse 14 in our text. In verse 14, or the verse before our text, in verse 14... He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, yeah. you will be blessed. Yeah. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In other words, the context in which Peter, and this is probably why it's causing unbelievers to ask questions. See, the context in which we are to do good, now in this instance, Peter is specifically referring to suffering. Suffering that is issued because of our doing good. In fact, if you back up a little bit, and in verses 12 and 13, he said, or, in, um, or in verse 13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous of doing, of, of, of doing good? Well, unbelievers are. So here's what he's saying is that when you suffer for the cause of good, yeah. don't pout. Keep doing good. That's his exhortation. Do good. Sanctify the Lord. In other words, honor God or the Christ who is the Lord. Honor him more than when we get up in church. I just want to give honor to God who is the head of my life. Let it be more than a catchphrase. Let us seek to honor God as the Lord of our life in every department of our lives. Even when we are done wrong. Even when people don't understand. You know what people expect when you do them wrong? We talked about this Wednesday night in our Bible study that when uh, Esther and, and, and she is elevated and and then you have Mordecai who's given, uh, he's given uh, Haman's uh, position and, and now he issues an edict to reverse the edict that had been developed by, by Haman where all of the Jews were to be persecuted and killed in the land. And then now Mordecai is given a position and he issues uh, an edict to revoke the first one. And then the scripture, and it's really interesting, it says that he went on to give a day of revenge. Now, we talked about what's wrong with that, but, but here's the interesting thing. That when this day of revenge was given, we are told that all of the Jews were happy, and all of the non-Jews were trying to pretend like they were Jews. <laughs> and our discussion was this. The reason they were trying to be, to, to be like Jews is because they knew what they would do if someone did to them what was done to the Jews. And so it, 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 it's not right. But here's the issue. People expect eye for an eye. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You haven't read it in my word, but you've heard it said. And when you hear it said, it makes sense. That's, you know, if you, if you dog my cat, then I'm going to catch your dog. You know, if, if it's that we, that's the law. That's, that's the way we, we function. We, we operate that way in our fallen nature. But here's what Peter is saying. Is that when heavy falls upon you, when you do good, and the good is rebuffed or not even received right, when you suffer as a result of doing good, don't revert to Adam. Revert to Christ. Don't honor, you know, because, you know, well, my family and my family, you just don't do that to us. Well, take it to your other family. That's what he says. See it through the lens of your other family. 
You don't cross us. No, no, no. And, and here's what he says. He says, therefore, be conscious, be conscientious, and be, be serious about this. As, Peter, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual. And they're spiritual for bringing down every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So when someone does you wrong, I know how to do that. I, I, I was raised in South Central. They told me how to do that. Somebody take this. I, I know how to handle that, but I don't know how to handle it in Christ. The strength that I have in Christ says, put down the right, put down the left, and let's, let's think about this. Here's what Peter is saying, is that when we refrain from tit for tat, when we refrain from, from seeking vengeance because somebody did us wrong, and instead we pray for them, and instead we serve them, he says an unbeliever is going to come and ask you, what on earth are you doing? They don't know that they're asking you about your hope. They don't know that. They just want to know what's wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you hear what they said about your mother? What's wrong with you? But Peter says, no, here's our purpose in this life. It is to bring glory and it is to bring honor. To Christ who is the head of our life. And so he says, when men ask you for the hope, when, when will they ask? When you get pushed, when you get prodded, when you get nudged, when you get picked on and you just stand. That's it. Doesn't mean we become, you know, does it, listen, it doesn't mean we become doormats. That doesn't mean when somebody break any house, you read them a Bible verse. No, you, unless it's the last rites. You, no, that's not, that's, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean you don't protect property and, 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 and personhood. But what it does mean is that just because somebody posted something about you, you don't have to get even. But it does mean is that our purpose in this life is what we used to sing as children, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, here's the light. The light is I don't have to be victim to my fallen nature. Sometimes the strength of a person is to withhold from saying or doing what your impulse tells you you have a right to do. But it goes further than that. Because Paul says, don't just, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't just say, refrain from doing evil. But our commitment ought to be to every image bearer of God. Now here's the fourth and final thing. We see the context here. You see, so again, the exhortation is be ready to give an answer. That exhortation is based on an assumption that unbelievers will see something about you that puts your hope on display. And so that the context of that then is our how do we put our hope on display? How do, how, how do we show forth our hope externally? 
by consciously seeking to glorify God in all that we do. And the context in which we do it is not just when things go well, but it's when things don't go well. But here's the conclusion. The conclusion is that our devotion to Christ as we engage a fallen world and as we endure suffering in this world, our devotion to Christ ought to be as such that it gives rise to questions from unbelievers. I don't believe how you can handle this. I have a friend whose older brother was shot down and killed, and it was gang violence, and they caught the person that killed him. And when they went to court, and the the sentence was, was given, and the mother, his mother stood up, and in the middle of the courtroom, she told the people that killed her oldest son, baby, I love you, and I'll be praying for you. And I pray that I want you to know that I'm not holding this against you, but I pray that something would happen that would cause you to know the saving love of God. Brothers and sisters, we don't always need a pound of flesh. We can't get enough flesh. But here's what we know, that when Jesus returns, that everything that has, done, has been done to us, he will repay. And he will reward his saints. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts always. And as you seek to bring glory and honor to him with all that you do, then know this, that men are going to ask, why? It doesn't mean they will all of a sudden become believers, but don't be ashamed to say, because God has loved me with an everlasting love. And he loved me when I was an enemy. And therefore, I love him in return. Be ready to give an answer. That's apologetics. It's a grounded in our on-the-ground, day-to-day suffering and contextualizing God's grace in the arena of our pain and our suffering, that we don't give up, that whatever it is that we endure, we do not give up because we know that Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you again. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the knowledge of your grace in the person and work of Christ. We pray that it would be our aim in our homes, in our communities, even in our churches to to sanctify you to filter the knowledge of your grace and love towards us into all areas of our thinking, that our our reflex would not be in the flesh, our reflex to suffering and persecution in this world would not be to get even. No, sir. But our reflex would be to turn to you and to continue to serve you in spite of what men say. And we pray that when they ask why, we are able to give them the answer. Because Jesus is coming again. We thank you, Father, for your grace in him.
And it's in his name that we do pray. Amen. 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 Would you please stand? Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be power, majesty, and dominion both now and forever. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Amen.